0: My name is Dan Boss, and um, if I don't know you, nice to meet you. Um, my wife and I, and our kids, have been a part of King's Cross Church for um, a couple years now. It's been awesome uh, since the since the church started. It's it's been an amazing thing to see God at work here, and um, I'm pumped to be be able to share this morning with you. Um, most Sundays, I'm up here leading worship. And playing the guitar and singing songs uh, with y'all, but today I get the privilege of speaking. Kind of feel naked without my guitar. I might just go like this, just, just out of habit. Um, so as as Ovid mentioned, this this month of August, we're kind of walking through some of the different kind of um, values of our church. We want our church to be gospel centered. We want our church to uh, to be a praying church and a community of caring for for one another and for the world around us. And this morning, I get the uh, privilege of talking about um, worship and what it means for us to to be a worshiping church. Um, so I want to look at kind of what it means that we come together each week, that we um, that we sing songs, that we pray, that we read the scripture, and we preach and um, how this forms us. Um, a lot of times we think of worship as just like the music portion of our service, but it's actually a much bigger thing <clears throat> than that. Um, music is a great avenue for us to use to worship God, but it's not, um, it's not like the definition of, of worship. It's not just the music. Um, the goal of the Christian life is that our whole lives are lived as worship to God. You've probably heard that phrase, a lifestyle of worship, kind of a trendy phrase to say, but it's um, really true. Um, we are made to worship. We're all made uh, in God's image, and we're made to worship something greater than ourselves. People don't think about it uh, much, but um, we worship something. You know, everybody out in the world is going to worship something. And if you go to any sporting event, any concert, any movie theater, you'll find people striving and looking for something to worship. And um, we as Christians know that we are created for this desire in us. And um, I love this quote by St. Augustine. It says, and you, maybe you've heard this before. I mean, we've said it here before in worship. but It says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. As Christians, we know that God has created us and he's called us to a life of worshiping him, and it's only in him that we will find our true fulfillment. So this morning I want to offer a few visions of what worship should be centered on and how it should look and feel both corporately on Sunday mornings and in the context of our our weekly kind of daily routines. I'm going to be looking at a few different scriptures, but Um, Mainly focusing on Revelation um, chapter 7, 9 through 17. So um, I'd like to pray as we begin, and then I want to invite you to just keep your eyes closed after the prayer. I'm going to read that scripture in Revelation 7. It's a pretty incredible passage with a kind of uh, an image of what is happening in heaven right now. So. I invite you to uh, pray and then just keep your eyes closed and try to imagine what is happening in this scene. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you would speak, that you'd give us ears to hear and you give us eyes to see. I pray that you would uh, be a lamp to our feet, that you would lead and guide us in this place today, and I pray that my words would be pleasing to you, and that the meditations of our hearts would be um, would, would help us grow this morning. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for all you've done. And hear these words from Revelation seven nine through seventeen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, They fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger, and never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Alright, you can open your eyes. It's a pretty amazing picture. Kind of awe-inspiring in a way. And what we just saw there was what John, the author of the book of Revelation, witnessed in a vision um, while he was on the island of Patmos. For many, um, for anyone who's read the book of Revelation, you might be thinking, wow, that's a pretty weird place to start uh, your sermon career (laughs) as a (laughs) preacher. Uh, Revelation does get pretty interesting. Um, There's a lot of images and visions in this book that are difficult, even for Bible scholars to understand and interpret correctly. But interestingly, in chapter 7, this image of worship is probably you know, sung in, in more songs than most, all the, all the other scriptures, you know, along with the book of Psalms, this chapter um, in Revelation has inspired a lot of different hymns and songs that we sing. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, um, we have some over here, but maybe just um, open up your Bible to, to Revelation chapter 7, and we'll kind of be walking through that this morning. And um, I know that we have some some little... Uh, uh, Sermon note sheets there too That we're excited about doing So take some notes if you want But this morning I want us to focus on Three different aspects of worship Worship as refuge As relationship And revival My three points right there The three R's Alliteration, you're going to remember that (laughs) Refuge, relationship And revival So first looking at how worship is a refuge um, let me give a little background to the book of Revelation the author of Revelation is a man named John Um, it's unknown whether this is the same John um, who was listed as a disciple and uh, the author of the gospel of John but regardless um, he was thought to be banished to the island of Patmos by the Roman Empire and it was a common practice If you're practicing prophecy, especially with political overtones or a threat to Rome, that they would kind of kick you out. And Revelation was written um, late in the first century. And this was a time in the church history where there was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of um, hostility towards Christianity and to Christians um, at that time. The martyrs were giving their lives for professing their faith in Christ and the churches were under attack. So in the midst of this, John gives this vision, and he addresses the whole book of Revelation to the seven churches in Asia. So it's a letter, it's a vision, it's a letter that he's writing to these churches for them to be um, built up, encouraged, and admonished for ways that they're uh, maybe dropping the ball. Um, It's interesting to read Revelation with that context that these first first century Christians had in mind. The heavenly vision that we're looking at in chapter 7 of worship around the throne of God um, and the multitudes from all nations and languages bowing before the king of kings is an amazing contrast to the Christians in these churches in Asia who are facing oppression and rule from another king, the Roman Empire. Think about what an assurance and a comfort it would have been to them to hear that over all the, con- all the conflict that they see in their lives and the persecution, the difficulty, God is above it all. He is the one that the multitudes and the angels and the living creatures and the elders are all bowing down before. He is the ruling power upon the throne, not the Roman Empire. And looking at our lives, we're, we're probably not facing even a fraction of the difficulty that these Christians are facing. Um, but what can we glean from this in our lives today? How does this picture of heavenly worship help us to order our lives? With the difficulty that we may be facing, we can know that God is on the throne; and He is over all things. No matter what we face—the earthly power, a ruler, or difficulty with our health or jobs—we know that God is ruler over it all, and He, in our worship. Is a declaration of our allegiance that there's nothing on earth, and there's no one on earth that we um, that we bow down before except to the living God who reigns in all things. A great example of this, I was thinking of our like a typical Sunday. A great example of us doing this is kind of funny, but when we take our offering, it's actually kind of a cool way for us to to live in that paradox that by giving away our money we find freedom in declaring that it has no hold over us, that we're not held under its authority. Because we know that our ultimate satisfaction is found in Christ. Our worship is a refuge also from the challenges that come our way on this earth because we know the ultimate reality. And we strive in our worship to hold that perspective that our earthly earthly life is not all that there is. Colossians 2, or 3, verse 2, says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Worship is this setting, um, this perspective in our hearts and minds, that the earthly life is not all that there is. And we're not just trying to hide away or escape our challenges in life. But we're reframing them in light of the sovereignty of our all-powerful God upon the throne. We hold to this picture now that even at this moment, the multitudes and the angels and the elders and the living creatures are around the throne of God, bowing down and worship. And God has declared back to them these promises. He says, "Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst." The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a promise of comfort and relief. This is the God we worship, and he is the God who knows all of our situations, he knows our trials and temptations, and he's sovereign over it all. There's a, a very real sense in which the church is and always has been a refuge from the world. We're called to take time out each week and come together to be built up, to be fed at the table and to taught from his word. And then we go back out into the world to be Jesus to the rest of the world. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says... When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Our worship is a refuge from the difficulty and the trials of this world. and It also serves to build us up as the church. So let's look at what this means that worship is also about a relationship. If we go back to this uh, Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What are the things that we notice happening here? We see a great multitude of people more people than we can count standing before the throne and the Lamb. And they have come from every nation, every tribe, and language, but they're gathered together in worship, dressed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. What does this show us about what worship is like in heaven? Well, it's it's communal. They're not just individual people worshiping, but they're gathered together together. And a lot of different people, different kinds of people. It's a worldwide affair. People gather from everywhere, speaking every language, and they're united together in worship. And the biggest thing that jumps out is that everything that we read about in this scene is focused on God and the Lamb. Everything there is centered around the throne of God. Everything they do and everything in this scene is focused on the relationship between the people. The eight angels and the elders and God, they bow in reverent worship to the throne. And there's no question on where the focus is placed. There's no question on the worthiness of God to receive their worship. All their actions and words have the sole purpose of glorifying God. John Piper uh, speaks about how our view of God needs to kind of hold this same perspective that we see in this in this heavenly scene. He says. Until God becomes dominant in our thinking and in our feeling, until he becomes the blazing sun at the center of the solar system of our daily lives, until he becomes the Mount Everest among the foothills of little concerns with this world, until he rests upon our souls and our churches with 10,000 times more weight than politics and church growth, until then, all of our talk about his glory and or his worship, or singing, will just be more human engineering of religion, of which the world needs no more. We need a large view of who God is, and what he has done, in order to understand our relationship to him, and our need to worship him, with all that we are. We need to grasp in our heart of hearts, that the God who existed before all time, before anything came into being, Before the foundations of the earth were laid is the God that we worship. He's not dependent on anything else for his being. Again, John Piper goes on, he says, God does whatever he pleases, and it is always right, it is always beautiful, and always in accord with truth. There are no constraints on him from the outside that could hinder him in doing anything he pleases, all the universe is, by comparison to God, as nothing, as an echo to a thunderclap, as a bubble to the ocean. All that we see and all that we are amazed by in this world and in the galaxy is, by comparison, nothing to God. So, our relationship to this all powerful God is not contingent on anything we could do or say, but only on God and the lamb that was slain. It's so easy when we come to worship to, to think about our needs and to think about how we're feeling and our situation in life. And some of that is good. We want to bring all that we are to God in our worship. But it always needs us needs to lead us back to God and His goodness. It's actually something that's it's difficult for me as a worship leader sometimes to, to lead worship. And I'm thinking about the songs and how things are coming together with the band and what's coming next in the service. And instead, I lose sight of what what I'm here to do, what we're doing together. We're worshiping God. We're focused on Him. We can so easily shift our thinking to thinking that we become the audience in our worship, that we need to be filled up and encouraged and taught, and we need to remember... That God is the audience of, and a recipient of our worship. We are filled up and encouraged and taught, yes. But that happens when we understand rightly who we are in relationship to God. And we seek first to give God the glory that he is due. First and foremost, we need to recognize our world, our worship, is about God. Giving glory to, to him. So we hear, hear that that phrase thrown around a lot in in church giving God glory or or talking a lot about God's glory but what are we actually saying John Piper um, defines God's glory as his greatness his beauty and his worth on display he says his greatness is referring to his scope, the extent and the grandeur, his beauty referring to the perfections of all his attributes and the infinite harmony of their interrelationships. And his worth is referring to the fact that he is a treasure more precious and more valuable, more to be desired than anything or anyone else in the universe. He continues, God's ultimate, all-encompassing goal in creation and redemption and consummation is that his glory may be known and admired and enjoyed that he be glorified in all that happens. So you exist, your family exists, your, um, your, your work exists, this church exists to glorify God. And his glory is being declared around the throne um, in heaven by the angels. It says in Isaiah 6:3: holy, 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 this is the angels declaring this to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So what's the goal or end of our worship? It's God's glory. Not that we feel better about ourselves or get to sing a nice song together, or even that we feel God moving in our lives, as good and helpful as those things are. But the ultimate goal is that God be glorified. So we read, as the multitude gathers around the throne and worship, it says God will shelter them with his presence. They will never hunger or thirst. God will wipe every tear from their eye, and the Lamb, who is is their shepherd, will lead them to springs of living water. Interestingly, this uh, phrase, living water, is a metaphor that we read um, multiple other places in scripture, but... One of the only times Jesus speaks directly about worship while he is here on earth, um, he mentions living water also, and it's with the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, If you want to flip there to John chapter 4, I'm going to read this little portion of John's encounter with this Samaritan woman. Everyone who drinks this water, and this is Jesus talking, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's referring to the water in the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in verse 20, the woman responds, Our ancestors ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse twenty one. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, in his encounter with this woman, tells us about what worship is all about. It's one of the only times he speaks directly about worship, and he says that location doesn't matter as much as the manner in which you come to worship. True worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? We must worship God in the Spirit. We must be open to the movement of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit in our worship. And in truth, we must know and strive to understand the God that we are bowing down before. um, In a conversation I had recently with a friend of mine, he said... One of the biggest hindrances he sees to our, our worship is the lack of expectation of God to move. And we usually get just what we're looking for. When we come to worship, we're coming in any expectation of God. Are, are we coming with any expectation of God moving or speaking to us? Do we spend any time getting our trying to get our hearts and minds ready for worship? And when we perceive rightly what worship in heaven is like, it propels us to worship with that same reverence and awe that the multitudes of people and angels and elders and living creatures have before the throne. When those who are in the presence of the living God fall down on their faces in worship, it begs the question, why don't we feel like that when we come and we worship? But it's more of our perspective that just needs to shift. Are we simply just distracted or unfocused, not expecting anything when we come to worship? What would it be like if we held that picture of worship from the heaven um, in our minds as we worship? How would that change our perspective on what worship is? What if we grasp the fact that we are, in a sense, part of the redeemed multitude from every nation language, worshiping God before the throne? even as we gather together as his body on earth. So I want to talk about um, the last point, that worship is a revival. Um, several years ago, Serena and I had an opportunity of helping to lead a, a short-term mission trip with, us, with some kids from uh, our church in Santa Barbara over to Nairobi, Kenya. We were working at an orphanage there and um, I think there was about 15 students that we took and uh, while we were there we got an opportunity to go to a, um, a church that met at a large outdoor uh, stadium there it was a um, it seemed like maybe it was kind of a, a an old stadium that had not been in use for a while there was nothing special about the place um, we were probably the only white people there and um but we felt utterly welcomed by the people around us. There was nothing special about the music. They sang a lot of Hillsong songs, I remember. There were no lights. The sound was mediocre. And But as the service began, people sang and cried out to God in worship. And the spirit moved as I've only felt a few times in my life. It was genuine and authentic. These people came to church... To be with Jesus, they didn't come there for any other reason. It was obvious. They were not there for the coffee, or the donuts, or to meet with their friends. I remember the absolute desperation with which these people, these people, came to worship. There were prayers for food, for the money that they needed for that week ahead. They recited scripture from memory as a church, and even their announcements were worshipful. It was. It was really funny, like I didn't even realize the announcements were happening, they were like singing through these things that God was going to do this week, and it was just awesome but I saw these people cry out in desperation because they had nothing else to fall back on I was amazed and inspired and we were on a mission trip there to share God's love with these people and I reflected on this worship service, what is the goal of a mission trip? What is the goal of missions? There's a a family in our church that has just gone to Indonesia um, to, to be a witness to Jesus there. But what is the goal of them being there? The goal is worship. Worship is the end goal to missions. That those who might not know Jesus may come to know him and worship him. So after my trip to Kenya... I really struggled coming back to the US and feeling just this apathy and complacency in my own life. When I came to worship, it was mostly out of obligation and being tired and not expecting much of anything. But this vision of what worship is in its light, like, in, in a purer form, I guess, was, was a motivating thing for me, just like this picture of worship in Revelation that we need to come with a right perspective on what it is we're actually doing. And we need to come with a desperation that we have we have nothing besides um, what God has given us. Here's another story about someone coming to, to Jesus in desperation. This is Luke 7, 36 through 50, if you want to turn there. kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know uh, who it is that is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Teacher, tell me, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And when he turned toward the woman, then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a pretty amazing picture of someone who is coming in desperation, unhindered in worship. So how do we come to worship? Do we come like the Pharisees who are encountering Jesus with an air of entitlement? or privilege, or like the sinful woman that we're aware of our place and our desperation and sinfulness and we need the grace and love of Jesus. Another way that worship is a revival is that music itself has a way of um, creating in us and arousing our affections in a way that just speaking cannot. So God could have created our world without without any music, without any singing, but he didn't. He gave us the gift of music to help us express and experience who God is. Jonathan Edwards, the great um, preacher of the 18th century, says, The duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. We use our music in worship because it has a power to move our affections towards God. God made music and song and beauty that we might be filled with wonder at who He is. And what he has done, and the Psalms are filled with language about how music has been used in worship. Psalm thirty-three, three says, "Sing to the, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy." Psalm one forty-four, I sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-string lyre, I will make music to you. In Psalm one forty-nine, um, verse one, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. So we gather to worship corporately on Sundays here at King's Cross because scripture gives us that picture of worship. And because God, the God we worship is worthy of all glory. We worship because in the difficulty of life's trials, we need to remind ourselves that God is our refuge and strength. He's always present with us. And we sing to God because of the relationship that we have with him. He is our creator, our helper, our savior, and our friend. He has called us into relationship with him that we might glorify him with our lives. We worship because music and songs have the power to revive our affections towards him. And give us a renewed perspective on who we are and who God is. And our worship doesn't end there. Our lives, after we leave this place together, continue that song throughout the week. How we work and how we go to school, how we live together as family and friends and roommates, how our small groups meet during the weeks, all of that is part of a song of worship to God. Would you pray with me? thank you for your scripture that shows us what true worship is, Lord, that it's given us this picture of worship in heaven, and in Jesus, we pray that our worship here on Sundays and in our lives, throughout our weeks, would be formed more and more by your Holy Spirit and the truth of who you are. Lord, we want to come with desperation. We want to come knowing that we have nothing besides what you have given us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As the the team is going to lead us uh, in some more songs, I want to invite you to just contemplate the both the ways that you need reviving in your life.